Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and, uh, well, I'm here with my special, fantastic co-host who, uh, was raised a single child uh, by fabulous, fabulous parents and has a lot to say about today's episode. Let me bring him on now. The wonderful, the very gay, it's Michael Verratti. Well, thank you, Peaches. I uh, appreciate the shout out to Anita and Rich, my parents, as well as my fabulous gayness. That's uh, Those are all things that I love to celebrate. I thought like, well, let's lean into today's episode because this might be, as of yet, perhaps the gayest film we've covered. And by that, I don't mean actually about two men or two women in love, but just in terms of its importance to a community or a culture, this might be, am I wrong? Like, I I, I mean, it's certainly Vegas in Space is is way up there. I mean, I, I, I suppose we could argue there's a lot, but this is a pretty big one. Well, I think it is because the messaging of this movie, of course, is to live, live, live. That's right, listeners. We are talking about 1958's anti-mame starring the impeccable powerhouse that is Rosalind Russell. And Peaches is absolutely right. This movie is a celebration of life and of self and uh, fabulosity. And for that reason, it's been very embraced by the queer community. And we're just stoked to talk about it. Oh my God. I'm I'm so glad that we're talking about this movie because um, admittedly, uh, it wouldn't have been high on my list of quote-unquote cult movies for us to cover. Um, but I do think that there are these specific, especially culturally cult films, that, that are going to be really fun for us to dig into. And especially as a queer person growing up, um, you know, seeing movies at the Castro Theater, it's kind of like I went to film school, I graduated, I moved to San Francisco, and then my secondary education was at the Castro Theater, at the Roxy Cinema at the Red Vic movie house, you know, watching repertory screenings. And really, this is the place where I first saw movies like Grey Gardens and Anti-Mame. And there's something about, especially for me, um, that period of my life where older gay men especially, and and some lesbians, Jennifer Morris, you know, the fantastic programmer um, at Frameline, like, they were really holding my hand and guiding me and saying, okay, you don't want to miss this screening of Anti-Mame. You need to see it at the Castro Theater with a thousand queers, you know, celebrating the impending holiday season. Not only did I know immediately that it was fantastic and fabulous and that I loved it, but uh, I have to say, it's like a fine wine. It ages better with time. And you and I getting to re-review it, you know, having not seen it in a while, I am just so impressed by how relevant, uh, how, how it speaks to what we're dealing with today, culturally. It is a fucking amazing movie. I love it so much. It's a movie that you truly want to live in, too. You know, yeah. there's a lot made about runtimes of movies in today's market. And Anti-Mame, made in the late 50s, clocks in at two hours and almost 40 minutes. But it doesn't feel like it. It clips along, and when it's over, I almost felt sad because I wanted too. more. Um, yeah. And I love that you brought up the fact that this movie, when compiling a list of cult films, 
maybe isn't the first thing that you think of because we tend to think of cult films in in sort of the midnight movie definition. The yeah. subversive, the horror, the transgressive, the button pushing. Not that this movie doesn't push buttons in its own way, but it does have a little bit more of a mainstream draw. But you mentioned the screenings at the Castro and living here in Los Angeles, Outfest had put on annually these screenings at the Egyptian theater that were attended by hundreds, if not thousands of people annually. And when you bring up this movie, it is part of people's traditions to go and see it. And that devotion is truly cult. And in watching this movie, it's not hard to see why. There are those cult movies that I would I would say are popular cult movies. They were shown on television. People felt a Christmas story, you know, that's a popular cult movie that you could screen in any town, anywhere in the country and get a turnout of people who love that movie. And sure, it's cult and it's you know, got a loyal following, but it's also just very, very popular. Anti-Mame has a very specific following. It speaks to a very kind of specific group of people and it's a little bit more niche and it definitely has this sort of queerness to it. And God, I mean, I guess all the movies we ever talk about, we're talking about how queer, queer, queer they are. We're just so queer. Uh, I mean, I apologize to all of the heterosexual listeners out there who feel so alienated, but fuck off. I don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And I know they don't feel that way at all. They're tuning into a podcast podcast hosted by us. They obviously want to hear us talk about what fudge packers like, you know, at the cinema. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, like this movie has that very specific cult response around it. And I love that it comes from Hollywood. It's a big movie starring a big movie star with a big budget, much like The Wizard of Oz. And it speaks to people on this universal level and then there's a deeper way it speaks to a specific group of people. And so you get language such as, I'm a friend of Dorothy's, right? So if you don't know, that was the coded way that queer people identified each other, to each other and to other people in the know. A friend of Dorothy's, referencing Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, meant that you were queer, which I love that shit. That is so awesome. Like there's this sort of coded language, right? And Auntie Mame is very similar. A lot of uncles out there, you know, who who were, were men and relationships with men where they may or may not have been out to their families, you know, definitely doted on their nieces and nephews in a very specific way. And they would call themselves the anti-mame, you know, of the family. Right. That's awesome, you know, and, and that's, it is. you know, we're, what we're going to get into. I love also the comparison to The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, I also in some ways think of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because all of these movies are about someone going from the drab world outside to this fabulous other world. Yeah. And of course, in Oz, it's this fantasy place. And Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka's factory is, is this other place. But in Mame's world... It's the world we live in, and Mame is merely saying, your life does not have to be drab. Magical realism yeah. is still real. You can still have magic. Life is a banquet. And I think that's part of the reason queer people are drawn to this movie in such a deep way, because I think as we grow and we find our chosen family and we find ourselves, we realize that the world may have told us we have to be this one thing, and then we realize we don't have to be. We can be what we make it. And and that's a powerful, awesome message. There's this sort of, uh, this connective 
thing in both those movies that I hadn't yet considered, which is the frustrating part of the third act for all of us who are looking for that magical escape. John Waters always, you know, talks about how he just never fucking understood why Dorothy wanted to go home. Like, you know, what do you mean you want to go home? You've got like a fantastic talking scarecrow for a best friend. And, you know, like you're hanging out in this colorful, magical world and you want to go back to fucking drab ass Kansas. Are you are you nuts? And I think with Auntie Mame, I found myself so frustrated by uh, Patrick's, you know, sort of embracing of this sort of drab, conservative, preppy, cunty world, you know, in the third act. It's that same reaction we have to Dorothy. Like, what do you mean you want to go home? So so as queer people, we're looking for our Oz. We're looking for our anti-mame. And we um, get to live this fantasy of what it means to escape. And let's face it, most of us did run away. You know, these it's movies true. helped us run away. What's interesting about that comparison and, and why John Waters is so right, you know, why would you want to leave Oz? Of course, The Wizard of Oz is made in the in the late you know thirties, uh, and and so there's still this kind of heteronormative principle applied to it. No matter how mm-hmm. fabulous it is, the idea that she still has to return home to tradition because that was where we were at culturally at the time. Where Auntie Mame parts ways with that. Yes, we see Patrick being drawn into the conservative world, but Patrick. Coming home for Patrick at the end of Auntie Mame is literally Patrick staying in Oz. He looks at this world that's demanding tradition and demanding him to push himself down and repress who he is and repress where he came from. And he says no. So the thing that's really cool about Auntie Mame is in a way, Mame says, you can stay in Oz. Yeah. And it, it, it makes sense, too, because we're at the end of the 50s. We've, we've, we're kind of like at the height of the Cold War. The counterculture is just about to blow, blow open. So I, I love that duality, and I think that it's it's really um, it's special. And, yeah, Patrick's a real dickhead in Act 3. But but he comes around. He comes he around. Comes around. Yes. He gets it, He gets his, uh, his redemption. And Dorothy's never a, a dickhead. Uh, thank, no. thankfully, no, 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 you know, but, um, but you are, I mean, I, I, even as a kid, I can like look back on that and think like, wait, you killed the witch. You're, you're in Oz. You, you know, the wizard isn't some monster anymore. Like, why the hell would you need to go home? But I guess she loved her aunt and her family. And, and that, and that is the thirties sort of agenda they were pushing. Right. But I think what you just brought up, which we don't talk about with either of our fantastic guests who we're about to introduce in a moment, I promise, is that this movie did come out in 1958. So we're just before the counterculture sort of revolution of the 60s. We are still in the 50s, folks. And if you really think about what Auntie Mame stands for, what her agenda is... Wow, was this character in this movie ahead of its time? And, you know, they really were sending the message before the young people were. It just makes me love the movie all the more. And, of course, she's not dressed as some filthy, long-haired, fringe-wearing hippie. She's looking fantastic and fabulous with perfect costumes and hair. And that's another reason we love the movie so much. The drag of it, really. Speaking of blazing a trail and perfect costumes and hair, <laughs> yes, that leads us up to our next guest, who 
was really the impetus for this episode because yeah. we had reached out to this person and uh, they said, if you ever do anti-mame, I would love to come and talk about it. And, and for just reason, because not only does this person have a long history of love for the film anti-mame, but has actually portrayed anti-mame on stage themselves. And yep. it's such a treat because this, this person is an icon, someone I love from movies like Die, Mommy, Die and Psycho Beach Party. I've, I've seen him perform on stage multiple times. I, I couldn't be more excited. It, it's Charles Bush, Peaches. Charles Bush is here. This was a tremendous honor to have this person on the Midnight Mass podcast. I mean, a pioneer, an icon, a legend, and all of these descriptors aren't even big enough to sort of say how I feel about this person because of the work they did and, and the way that it paved the way for, for people like me to come along and do drag theater and, and make drag movies. So yeah, without further ado, our very, very, very special guest, it's Charles Bush. Well, we are here with our very, very special guest. And I know for both Michael and I, this is a huge honor and a thrill because the guest we're about to introduce is truly an icon. The author and star of such plays as The Divine Sister, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, The Tribute Artist, and The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. He also wrote and starred in the film versions of his plays Psycho Beach Party, which I ran for many, many months at the Bridge Theater, and Die, Mommy, Die, where this guest and I, uh, we, we have uh, an actor in common, Natasha Leone. And this guest has won countless awards. Go to Wikipedia, check it out. So without further ado, it's the fantastic, the brilliant Charles Bush. Hello darling hi thanks for being here it really truly is an honor to have you on the show oh well thank you this is gonna be fun i hope <laughs> what i think is important to note to listeners is you were actually the inspiration for this week's episode because we had reached out to you about a different movie and you said i don't know if that's move that movie's for me but if you ever do anti-mame and then peaches and i were like we should do anti-mame because it's it's really its own cult phenomenon. And uh, I, I know in San Francisco, they do Christmas screenings. Here in L.A., up before the pandemic, there were annual screenings of this movie. And the cult of anti-mame is strong. So probably a good place to begin, Charles, is when did you first encounter this movie? Hmm, I feel like mame in its various incarnations has always been a part of my life. Hmm. I probably saw it on television. But there, there was a period. I grew up in the New York area. And I remember um, my father had a record store in Yonkers. And, and sometimes, like, I, I, on a Saturday, I was sort of stashed away in his store for the whole day. But there was a, a big movie palace up the street. And so sometimes I'd go to a double feature just to take up the day. And I think there was, like, a double feature of The Music Man and Auntie Mame. And it was, like, <laughs> really heavy, long movies. And, you know, I'd walk in there noon and leave at six o'clock just you know bleary-eyed so it was probably you know that it might have been that you know i was kind of my childhood was basically was anti-mame my my mother died when i was seven and uh and uh, ultimately i was adopted by my aunt 
who lived in Manhattan, my Aunt Lillian, and who raised me, who had some of the qualities of Auntie Mame. Although I guess in this case, the nephew was more flamboyant than the aunt. But yes. <laughs> and then we went to see, she took me to see the musical Mame on Broadway when I was a little kid. I mean, it just kept, you know, spinning around and around and around. And it goes even beyond that, ultimately. Um, my connection with Auntie Mame continued as an adult where my, my partner of many years, Eric Myers, wrote a, um, a wonderful biography of the author of the original novel, Auntie Mame, Patrick Dennis, and uh, called Uncle Mame. It's a wonderful book. And so for about three years while he researched this uh, subject, um, we became uh, friends with all of Patrick Dennis's family and his widow and his children. It, it just keeps going around and around, concentric circles, me and, and Mame. I knew because you and I are friends on social media, I knew about your aunt. And I, I've you know heard the story as you've shared it. And I'd forgotten until I was re-watching the film. And then I thought, oh my God, I, I think Charles has had this experience, yeah, you know, which yeah. is so fascinating as far as your connection to the movie. And also I think because so much of your career and so much of what you uh, have been inspired by is Hollywood and, and yeah. you know, the glamorous uh, women of Hollywood, obviously the, the, the great actors. And for me, rewatching it especially, I was taken by maybe more so now. I went through this phase where a, a, an older gay professor of mine actually gave me a list of movies, yeah. you know, when I was young. Oh, and, and, and he told me I needed to see, because at one point I said, I made the mistake, or the, I, maybe it wasn't a mistake. I made, I, I said, I don't get Judy Garland, you know, <gasps> and he was like, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I, but, but listen, I was in my 20s and obsessed with John Waters, right? So it was him who kind of took me by the hand and said, you need to get Judy Garland. And, and here's, here are the things you need to watch. And you need to understand Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And, oh. and one of the things on the list was Auntie Mame. How lucky and, you are. Uh, Yes. Oh, I'm so grateful to him. In fact, I think we should require young queer people to take courses taught by us. You know, well, yes. You know, I have a list of um, my movie list, and for yes. a number, number of young people, God, I sound so young people. Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I run into you know different people who've worked on my shows, just, you know, and uh, who just don't know classic film, and and I I have my list, and it's an eccentric list because it's basically my, my favorites. No, yes. you know, so a lot of you know films that be on other people's lists are not on mine, but uh, and there are a lot of cult films on it, or you know, certainly you know, just movies with my favorite ladies, and Rosalind Russell is one of them. Uh, oh my God, Rosalind Russell! We'll get we'll get to just how incredible she is, but I wanted to just say that rewatching it, especially now years later, and I've seen it at the Castro Theater and gone and seen it, but it really hit me what a, especially I think now with the times we're living in, an ahead of its time story it was about the kind of person who was, you know, really a trailblazer and what a gay fantasy it would be, especially if you're a queer kid yeah. growing up anywhere mm. um, where, where you don't feel like you fit in. Like rewatching it, I was like, I was so mad at uh, the nephew at the end of the movie, you know, when he when he goes for the snobby yeah. stuff, because it's like, how dare you, you traitor, you know, um, you know. So, so what is it that you think has particularly spoken to you know queer people about this film? It goes back to the original novel in a sense, which I mean, you could make a case that it kind of introduced 
modern camp to the mainstream as a novel, and it was a huge bestseller. Then it was such a hit bestseller that it then became a play. And each version kind of gets slightly degayed a, a, a bit and then the musicals. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think for the American public, it kind of introduced a certain kind of uh, camp. And then that kind of a lady and an anti-mame type lady. She's an anti-mame type. People say that so much right. anymore. But uh, many people do have a relative it may not be as outrageous as Auntie Mame, but but I, I notice like on my Facebook page when I when I write about my aunt and, and people often comment, well I, I had an Aunt Rose, I had an Aunt Pearl, and you know in Oklahoma City, and she was you know so supportive and and introduced me to uh, opera or fashion or all of that. So I mean I I think it's very identifiable that it, it, it takes it to a much more exaggerated place that she's she's so outrageous. But I, I think reason why anything has such a importance is because there's a, a primal identification. And I think that uh, many people have a, a, a grandparent or, or, or an aunt who just has an original outlook and, and somehow saves them, is uh, um, introduces them to... One of the things, and I think for a lot of gay people, it's an older gay gay um, gay person who becomes their their auntie mame. Yeah, I think all these movies, like something like The Wizard of Oz, you know, it's it because it's such a part of us because there's just something so elemental about it that that uh, hits us in such a, a deep resonant place. What I particularly love about this movie, and of course, you know, we can examine the camp sensibilities and the drag sensibilities of Mame herself. And I was looking at that while watching it again for this this recording. But what really struck me this time around is how tuned in to the theme of chosen family this movie is. Because of course, Patrick you know, is her real family, but you also see this construction of family around her, Edo, Nora, Agnes later, uh, and and Vera, Vera Charles, of course, an amazing character. I really also like how even though Patrick is her actual family, he still has to choose her at the end. And I think that there's probably a queer resonance, would you say? Yeah, I think you're, you're so right. I That hadn't quite occurred to me, but at one point she even says at the end, uh, uh, when when she has invites everybody there for the crazy party at the end, and she says, "Oh, it's just family," because yes, because they all are you know, Acacia's page, the people who raised you, darling. You know, that yes, it's, it's really true. Auntie Auntie Vera, yes. Auntie Vera, and Gooch at that point, and it elevates some of the stuff that because it was made in the fifties, and. In some ways, you look at the character of Ito, and there's something very cringy about watching it now because it's so cartoony. But I will say that it's elevated because the kindest act in the whole movie is performed by Ito and Nora when they pay all her bills for her. They love her and appreciate her so yeah. much yeah. that it's it's one of the most touching, beautiful moments. And it really yeah. elevates those characters from being just cartoons, yes. you know. Yeah. yeah, functionaries. No, that's really true. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I was uh, very, you know, hit by was that we are living in this time of great division culturally. And, yeah. and you look at a movie like this 
and and then look at when it takes place and you realize like, wow, we really haven't come very far. We're still this country that's divided by both North and South, but also the idea of worldliness and open-mindedness, right? Like that's what she really represents. And yes. this sort of conservative American, we got to hang on to t- tradition or well, something. Yeah, I mean, and very much in the, it's in the plot where she's striking a blow against um uh, anti-Semitism and um, classic li- liberal point of view, and the and the and the um, the villains of the piece are these uh, conservative uh, anti-Semites. Yeah, yeah. it's you know, not even veiled. I mean, it's what the plot is. And there are things too, you know, in in the movie when they first uh, Pat, the young Patrick and Nora first enter, and you see the wide shot of the party scene, and you see the two lesbians. Yes. Like, yeah. Center. I've actually played, you know, May Montour, darling. You know, I oh. just some some of the tour. So I play I played the role numerous times. And uh, actually, the the play, uh, they you know they had a kind of uh, edited a little bit for the movie. But at the end, when when Patrick has that big dramatic toward the end, the big speech to her when he's um, going to go off with the Upsons, and he, you know, um, and he wants O'Banion to be um, to her to get rid of him. In the house, and mm-hmm. I, and actually, he's in the play. He says, "Can't you be like a normal person? I don't want you to be showing off your airy fairy friends from Fire Island." Wow, um, that's yeah, not subtle. So, <laughs> not at all. I mean, that's in the in the play. They, you know, they 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 had to edit that at the film in 1958. You know, she's surrounded by by gay people. The movie itself comes from the stage show. And what I really appreciate in the translation is it's still a series of of vignettes that end with that kind of theatrical fade out that then create like a larger narrative. Now, as someone who has portrayed MAME, because this narrative is a series of interconnected vignettes that form the larger narrative, there are also kind of like micro stories. And I'm just curious, when, when you get to play this role, did you have a favorite portion of it? Or did you just love embodying her in total? Well, you know, it was so emotional for me to play it because, you know, since, since I identified so strongly with my chi- childhood, so it was qu- quite emotional. I was fortunate that, um, well, first, the, the first time I played it, it was a series. We did a series of big actors fund benefits here in Broadway-sized houses, and we had just incredible casts of Broadway people. And the very first one, we had Peggy Cass came out of retirement and played Gooch. Wow, That's <laughs> and, and it was so wild too because we. I guess the um, assumption was that she would, you know, wasn't going to do it. So we, I guess, this producer phoned her and asked her if she would be the uh, host of the evening. And she said, well, can I play my old part? <laughs> and, and we couldn't believe it. And it was so wild because, you know, she comes on, she doesn't come on until act two. She, you know, she was old and she kind of moved like an old old woman, but her voice was exactly the same. And we only rehearsed it maybe twice, if. And uh, when she came on stage, of course, it was almost, it was largely gay audience. It was packed and, and they just, the ovation for her. And every single time she opened her mouth, every line reading was exactly the same as the movie. <laughs> she sounded exactly the same. So every single line got an ovation. I mean, it was a very long evening. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm a sponge. I mean, every line was exactly the same. And, and then when I got to the point where I had to pull her off stage saying, live, 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 yeah. it was so bizarre because I thought, I know that I'm not Roz, but this really is Gooch. Yeah. And I, well, I've walked into the movie. I'm in the movie now. 
it, it, it was just extraordinary. But but I guess I I loved the most was the dramatic moments, honestly. Oh. And and I had a wonderful actor, um, Max von Essen, who played older Patrick, which is you know kind of a not much of a part, but he was a real actor, and he um, he just imbued it with so much tenderness and and and. Um, anger where he had to and so we really played those scenes and it was interesting too because in a way the response we got you know when we did the one night events when it was largely a gay audience who knew the movie by heart was so uh, i mean it was just like you know the circus then when we when we did the full production you know we were getting these very mixed audiences who in some cases didn't necessarily know the movie and it seemed rather dated some of the Mm. comments Right. You know, some of these things about her, her sending him to the nude school, with the nude teachers just didn't seem so funny today. And, you know, her, the unwed mother jokes just seem kind of tired. Uh, it's different when you're watching a, a classic film than actually seeing it. However, the dramatic sentimental moments really worked well. And there's something very potent to, about it's one of the reasons the movie holds up so well is just this idea of this this woman who who saves this child and uh well, I get sort of choked up talking about it um, mm. and and then you know he sort of saves her and goes yeah. back and forth it's you know it's very um real and more more touching than in the in the novel which is really on a rather cartoony level and Patrick Dennis was um so impressed with the adaptation that Lawrence and Lee did and, and and told them he said you know you you gave it tears you gave it a heart that the novel didn't have wow that's usually in reverse right like usually it goes the other direction because the the book is able to take its time and really get deeper into the get to the heart of things whereas movies you know especially a movie like this it's so interesting the line that they're walking, because it is camp in many ways, or what we now consider to be camp, and it is comedy. I mean, some of the comedy is just so outrageous. The whole, the whole um, horse fox chase sequence, and yeah. you know, really over the top. But those moments of earnest connection and heartbreak, and yeah. you know, yeah. that like we discussed, the the paying of the bills, and you know, her her just being so moved and pretty quickly like i was watching it going wow we really accept really early on that she needed this kid because he just sort of walks into her life and she just it is a fantasy she just embraces him with total love and open arms now it's in her own way you know it's it's you know in her eccentric way but it is pure love and that brings me to rosalind russell i think that the whole movie is colored by this brilliant performance. And yeah. I'm just wondering if you can talk about just what makes this performance so special. Well, I think she was really perhaps the most technically adept comedian of talking film. I mean, the speed of, of her articulation and, and her comic resourcefulness is, you know, I mean, she's so brilliant in His Girl Friday and, you know, and, and the women, I mean, that that performance, nobody's ever been able to play yeah. that part. I, I've done a lot of one night events of that too. And it's, and I've seen revivals of that. And it's very hard for most of the ladies who play Sylvia and the women come off really bitchy and mean and just sort of mean and like a villain. And Rosin Russell is able to play this horrible gossiping woman who's sort of blithely destroys people's lives, but with this kind of almost childlike 
glee that uh, <laughs> that makes it makes her fun to watch, makes her a fun film character. The, the joy she's getting from from the gossip and you know and and this kind of slightly spoiled little girl quality mm-hmm. that she has a tantrum that she's like a, a spoiled child, um, and so she brings that you know that incredible skill to to the role of Auntie Mame and and yet she can also you know I mean there are times where, you know I mean I, I'm not really so f- fond of Rosalind Russell playing when she goes dramatic in some of her you know heavier dramatic roles in movies she she tends to be posing for the a statue of the madonna but uh <laughs> and even in, in auntie mamek there are a couple times where she's gets a little, little posy but you know we'll, we'll give it to her right yeah yes yes, yes. Uh, yeah but you know she's just wonderful i, I don't think anybody could re- really play auntie mame like she did no, it's just a great performance. She was uh, nominated for an Oscar for it. I'm so glad that you referenced His Girl Friday because as I was rewatching this, that was the movie I kept thinking of because, you know, that Howard Hawks film is so notable yeah. for the speed with yeah. which they deliver those lines. And in a way, when you look at how Mame is is portrayed in this movie, especially that opening sequence when she's just going through the party and it's ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, and then we see her kind of pick up those that 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 speed later as well. In a way, who else could have done this? It had to have been someone who trained in those those grounds. Her technical facility as comedian is just unparalleled. Well, with that in mind, because you you mentioned that she is the definitive name, she played her on stage, she did it in this movie, and we still thinking think of her. We're talking about her today. I did briefly want to get your take on uh, Mame, the Lucy musical, uh, and how it compares in in your mind. I know people who who have great affection for that movie, and and Lucille Ball in that role. I guess if you know if you were a kid growing up in the '70s or '80s, let's say, you know, and the first time your first exposure right. to the story is watching the musical movie, then that becomes imprinted in your mind, and you, you know, it's just if you had grown up watching the Ros and Russell movie, and then you see, you know, Mame and the musical, and and you just see like like they're making like it seemed like every wrong choice, you know, from that ha- awful little boy, most charmless, you know, uh, <laughs> least vulnerable child actor, least talented child actor I've ever seen in a movie, you know, playing that kid. It's so inexpressive and, and just, you know, uh, it's been so, everything's so toned down that she's, She's about as flamboyant as Nancy Reagan, really, you know, and and (laughs) musical numbers. It's just like every wrong move is done. But I guess if you had never seen it before, you would just think that was kind of magical. This is a totally weird aside, but the other day uh, I was talking to my friend David, and he said he went to a dinner party, and David's, you know, um, in his later 50s, and he had gone to a dinner party for Thanksgiving and there were all these young queer men there and he made a steel Magnolia's reference and one of them turned and said, uh, what is that? And, you know, the, the older gay men said, it's steel Magnolia's and the young gay men all said, oh, with Queen Latifah? And, you know, they they wow. they had this sort of, disc, <laughs> like this sort of moment between the olds and the youngs where the older gay men were kind of gobsmacked, but it's like, well, if if you if you grew up at a certain time, yeah, then yeah. for you, Steel Magnolias is the one with Queen Latifah. You know, it's it's yeah, it's it a is. different thing. Yeah. So it, 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 and that's what they were introduced to. And 
But anyway, that's an aside. But of course, with these stories that get retold and remade, you know, that's just the way it is. And a lot of people think the original Star is Born is with Lady Gaga. That That's going to be a lot of people's takeaway from that movie, for sure. It was a huge hit. Done before, really? Right. <laughs> And then there's, you know, the, the, the people who grew up with the Barbara Streisand version, and then, of course, yeah, yeah. the people with Judy. So yeah. with the movie Anti-Mame, um, there, there's a couple sort of fun things I wanted to ask you that I think uh, fans may, may have fantasized about. Two more superficial questions. One is, uh, if you could have any of her costumes, which would you choose? And the other is, if you could live in any version of her apartment, which would you choose? <laughs> well, I sort of live in her apartment now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm really very, very fortunate that I, I live in a... a a duplex apartment with a big staircase. Wow, that is. And, I, and in fact, I just redid the wallpaper and the entranceway. It's all it's all sort of Indian, like the Taj Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> you really do live in it. Wow. I do. And my I, I unfortunately because of COVID, I haven't had my Christmas party. Um, I guess my Christmas parties are a bit of a cross between um, the party in Auntie Mame and the party in All About Eve. I remember one year. Uh, there was there was a little boy who uh, came into my life uh, who was here and um, and I was sort of taking him by the hand and introducing him to 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 my friend Sandra Lee who was the original Tiger Lily and Peter Pan with Mary wow. Martin and I said I, 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 you you must be you know, Sandra well, my dearest friend Sandra Lee a great lady of the theater I thought, oh my God I'm an Auntie Mame I'm just doing <laughs> My apartment, I guess I had to describe it to somebody. It's kind of a cross between um, a 19th century Parisian bordello and the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it sounds perfect. It sounds perfect. So I don't have to use my imagination on that one. Costume. uh, God, her clothes are so great in that movie. Um, uh, I sure like that that original, that opening costume with the the, uh, Chinese silk jacket and the... um, black um pajamas that's oh, perfect yeah. although yeah. i hear that costume was a little dangerous they did the opening shot of her coming down the stairs she fell down the stairs and broke her ankle and oh, they really? had to pause production for like however amount of time for her ankle to heal so really? I didn't yeah know that. fashion fashion's dangerous which wow. is so interesting, Michael, that you bring that up because I did not know that story at all. But one of the things I was going to say that is so noteworthy is the way that she can run down those stairs in those shoes repeatedly. She's almost floating down the stairs the way she yeah. kind of, you know, enters the room and and it's almost effortless. So to find out that she actually broke her ankle at one point is, you know. She did do it eight times a week for about a year. True, yeah. true. Yeah. But it, it's a killer part, though. We should talk about Coral Brown. Yes. Yes. Watching the two of them do the uh, the stage show with the, the jewelry and the back and forth and the bows at the end. I mean, really realize it's just two pros. And then it carries through, you know, in the whole movie, it, it, like yeah. little moments where where she she uh, puts the, the bigger drink, you know, in, in Mame's hand. You know, like their, their relationship being both um, – competitive and you know kind of you've got two divas two wonderful you know divas but they're really friends they're family they truly are family yes and that's probably another another key to why so many gay people love it too because basically most 
gay men have their Vera. Yes. You know, one of them is Vera, one is Mame, and almost every close relationship between two gay men. Well, I think that speaks to the the inherent queerness of the movie, and you're, you're highlighting it with this, yeah. with, with what you just said, because we've all seen a variation of this story where once that happened on stage, I think in a more hetero-leaning story, their friendship would have been over. We would have not seen Vera again because she would have felt wronged. But for them, it was just another thing. It was, it was too... Yeah. You know, it's a, a blip in the drag radar, if you will. And I think that uh, I, th- I think that that's really great. It's again, it comes back to the chosen family of it all. Also, for our spooky you're, listeners, which you're, we, you're we smart, you're very smart. <laughs> <laughs> you're really smart. Oh, thank you. Um, I was just going to offer because I, I like to jump in with movie trivia every so often. For those uh, who have been long haul Midnight Mass listeners, of course, we've talked about Vincent Price before. We can't talk about Coral Brown without recognizing that she and Vincent Price were married. So that's uh, that's that's my little tidbit there. Charles, I have to ask, uh, in this show, what do you think of her her different? We talked about the drag of the apartment and the drag of her her outfits and and your your preferences there, but her hair goes through some journeys too. And I don't yeah. know, do you have do you have a favorite hairstyle of Mame? Well, they're all kind of variations of the same style, except just different different colors, right? I I, I guess Roz does look look best as. Uh... Uh, with her her black hair, but I guess one of the sequences I really just love. I love the whole the whole part with Brian O'Banion when she's uh, they're writing the book together and oh yeah all that, all that dialogue is so funny. I love when when he, he, he I, for those who don't know the movie, but I'm sure everybody's listening to this knows the movie. That's why they're hopefully listening. one but, would um, hope. But yeah, but you know <laughs> she's she's writing her memoirs and they provided her with a, a ghost writer and he's this sexy uh, Irish poet and so he keeps editing her prose into s- symbolism and was Brian I'm not sure this, this the symbolism is they're gonna is gonna, gonna work you know from the caves of Kakamura I emerged like dear dear Deirdre <laughs> wept cool tears wouldn't it be easy to say that on the day I was born it rained in Buffalo you know adore yeah. <laughs> adore that that's oh, so funny the, the symbolism I, I mean and I don't think this was intentional but you reminded me of the fact that that there's a lot of penis reference kind of like going on on, which I don't think was intentional, but as a as a, a, a very immature, very extremely immature gay man, you know, every time they would say Woodcock, Babcock, Babcock. wait, was it Babcock? And then what was the, the 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 Georgian ranch called? Peckerwood. Peckerwood. Yes, yeah, 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 I guess. Yes, it is sort of a dick joke. Yeah. yeah. Peckerwood. I was Pe- like, Peckerwood. Peckerwood. Really, Peckerwood? You know, like of course yeah. I could not. You know, I, I I need to grow up, quite frankly. Yeah, I think that was intentional. Yeah, Patrick, yeah. for Patrick Dead, it's from the novel. Right, right. Well, yeah. it makes sense because let's let's be honest. In the crudest of terms, those people were dicks. So it's like <laughs> I love, love, love when uh, Vera burns them about their honey daiquiris later. Like you know oh, that yeah. that was just such like a planned moment. They were serving daiquiris made with honey. Yeah, that he just yeah. he's just like so taken aback. That whole sequence of her decorating the house and preparing for them and really just saying, No, I'm not I'm not playing this charade anymore is fabulous. And then of course we have to talk about Joanna Barnes as Gloria Upson. I mean that's just an iconic performance and people have been sort of doing her without even knowing they're doing her. Right. Know, yeah. Uh, yeah, and her, the whole big set piece of her talking about the ping pong ball. 
Brilliant. And evidently, um, I think when they were doing the in the rehearsal for the play, Roz uh, was dubious how that was going to going to work, and she didn't think it was going to be funny, and that they should cut that, and, and the writers would trust us, and it was just you know got a huge response, and and you got to give Roz Russell credit that as a star that she didn't say uh, it's getting a little too too many laughs. Right, uh, right, and I mean, and it's iconic, and. Uh, it kind of was like that accent is just so yeah. over the top. And you're right. People do it all the time. Even the way she ends a sentence and, and the, the the way that she – it's like Margaret Hamilton playing a witch. It's kind yeah. of like the way she played a snob is going to be forever imitated, right? For Forever. And pe- like you say, people won't even know that they're doing her being a top drawer snob or whatever. And, you know – it. It's Rosalind Russell's reactions, though, that actually actually make that all work so well. Because Rosalind waiting for the 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 story to end is actually what makes it even better. Is her <laughs> yeah. kind of go, like leaning in, like, and then, you know, yeah. and this can't be the end of the story. Oh, what a great scene! Lee Patrick was a wonderful character actress playing Mrs. Upson. I mean, it's such a horrible character, and you know, and she's so funny. We're highlighting the fact that the cast in this movie all around delivers, because in a movie with such a dynamic personality as Rosalind Russell, who has to be the center of this fantastic mm-hmm. universe, it would, e- would be very easy for other people to fade away. But even uh, the woman who plays Pegeen, who's barely in the film, she's at the end, but she instantly sells you that she has this chemistry with the older Patrick, that you're like, oh, that's who he needs to end up with, not her. And uh, that's that's not easy to do. How do you steal a scene while all and that's an ensemble scene? Everybody's already in the room. So I, I remember reading. I, I guess I don't know whether it was in Rosalind Russell's memoir. Or she encouraged them to give Gooch more and Gloria Upson because she said the audience has seen plenty of me in Act One. You can give Act Two to to other people. Just make sure that the ending is is back to me. <laughs> well, it, it, it definitely works, and the, uh, the the way the movie plays out, it's like I hate long movies. I, I hate movies that feel long. I, I'll say this: the running time isn't my problem. Um, and so, I think right now we've got these movies that that Hollywood puts out that are all about 144 minutes, these fucking comic book movies and stuff. And it's like, why, why? But watching Auntie Mame, I looked at the running time before I sat down and watched it. And I was like, I didn't remember it being that long. And I didn't want it to end. You know, like I felt like even that third act and it's a long movie, it's 144 minutes. I felt like, oh, it feels a little rushed. Like I just felt you fall in love with the characters so much, you know, you don't want to leave them. Well, it's also episodic, too. Right. You're never really in one sequence all that long. Yeah, I did want to ask both of you as filmmakers what you thought, and Michael, you brought this up already, but, like, did they actually light all those sets to then pull out all the lights at the end of those vignettes so that only one light was left on her? Well, you know, it's the same director, Morton Tacosta, who did it in the theater. Mm. You know, it's one of those rare cases where they actually have the stage... Uh, director do it. He did both um, The Music Man and um, Auntie Mame. He, he directed them on stage and then did the film versions. It's, it's pretty rare. And, and that was his trademark. And uh, uh, they, did, they did it in the theater 
and then they recreated it on film. And that technique is called the Flanagan fade, which is named for the gaffer that he developed it with. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked because as a filmmaker, I was watching it going like, that's that's very complicated. Like, I would imagine that when they, they he pitched the idea to the gaffer, it was not, it probably was you know, it's seen as a hurdle to overcome. Because, yeah, that's a lot of lighting <laughs> to figure out. But it worked. And oh, I love it's, it's a full circle moment because Charles told us at the top of this conversation that he went to see Auntie Mame and Music Man as a double feature. So there yeah. we go. Warner Brothers movies from 1960. Well, one was 58, one 62. But I guess, you know, when they were reissued together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charles, we cannot thank you enough. I, I feel like I could talk about Auntie Mame forever. We know that you're just such a brilliant movie lover. We would love to invite you to come back on and talk about another one of your favorite movies sometime. I'd love it. Oh, oh, Peaches. You know, Midnight Mass is a show that's all about fans who will do anything for their movies. So before we go, I feel like I have to ask Charles about The Sixth Reel because that's a film that you just made that's all about a very deep commitment to movies, correct? Literally just signed the contract with the distributor. So oh, congratulations. Be, um, Carl Andrus, who's been my theater colleague for about 25 years now. And we wrote the movie, co-directed it during the pandemic. You know, as you know, most movies take years to get on, but it all just worked out that we um, wrote the movie, you know, together, Skyping. And, and we were able to fortunately found this one investor who paid for it all. And we shot it a year ago, October, at, before there was a vaccine. And you know, we have a lot, of, most of our cast is over 65 and it was kind of a little, a little scary for them, but we, we shot it in 15 days, mostly on a sound stage, And uh, I'm just so proud of it. It's a caper comedy set today, but about um, collectors and dealers of classic film. Right. It's about the missing reel of London after midnight. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It was, it's a real movie. It's one of the most um, sought after lost films is a, a Lon Chaney vampire movie and what if you know my character had actually stumbled across this uh, a, a reel of it I know that world and yes. uh, we, we just had a great time doing this and I, I look forward to really being able to share it with a lot of people well congratulations on the distribution and I know that uh, we speak for the listeners when we say that we, we have great interest and are looking forward to seeing it when it, when it hits the streaming airwaves or whatever you call it <laughs> <laughs> my return to the screen after 12 years my dear 12 years I, I really didn't think I was ever going to make another movie Carl and I connected with uh, a producer named Ash Christian yeah. Oh, yeah. We both know Ash. The Hurricane Bianca movies. Yes. And I was so impressed with those movies he did on such a budget, but, you know, really looked like real movies. And Carl and I came up with this idea that all took place in New York City and with, you know, just real settings. Although, ended up then COVID hit and we had to shoot it all in a soundstage and, and build all these sets. But even still, it was uh, do- doable. Um, and then, then, then Ash... Um, suddenly died at the age of 35. It was just, uh, uh, but we didn't lose a step and and the co-producers he had stepped up and and we just got it made. Yeah, that's so amazing. And that that was such a tragic, for for those of you, you know, 
who don't know the full story, it was a sudden thing. Ash went to Puerto Vallarta to, to go on vacation, and it was a friend to so many of us in the community, and it was yeah. behind the financing and the producing of many great indie films. And what a yeah. what a tragic loss, you know, for all of us. But you know, hey. Th this is part of his legacy is your movie and you know like uh we cannot wait to see it and the other thing i wanted to say is just like how um much i admire you and 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 i love psycho beach party love yes. die mommy die well i think you yes. know it'd be great to have you back on the podcast sometime to talk about your movies and i know that we have lots of fans of yours um and i remember when i first uh met natasha leone and was kind of kind of trying to prepare her for what it might be like to uh, work with a drag queen, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, as if she hadn't. And she goes, honey, please, I've worked with Charles Bush, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, of course. We had a wonderful time together. Yeah. She, she's a great person. And, and how, how wonderful that that she's doing so well with um, Russian Doll, which is so yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, she's like, you know, become this A-list superstar, you know, which yeah. is, it, it's just so satisfying to see, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's so smart, very smart, very, very intelligent. Brilliant, yeah. Well, Charles, from the magic of movies to the magic of MAME, we are so happy that you joined us today. Uh, we couldn't have uh, asked for a better guest because not only are you a super fan of this movie, you were her on stage, and that's the magic <laughs> that we need. So thank you, thank you so much. Yes, okay. thank you. Hey, that was our interview with the legendary Charles Bush. And uh, oh my God, Michael, what a total thrill to get to talk to Charles about this movie. I just love all of Charles's history with this film. The fact that he himself was raised by a fabulous aunt, that he then went on to play Auntie Mame on stage. Uh, and he got to play Auntie Mame with Peggy Cass, who was Gooch in the movie. I mean, what a perfect guest. Um, and also just the fact that he respects and understands its place in Hollywood history and as a cult film, you know, and how informative it's been to him. As you said, it was Charles who who recommended Anti-Mame and kind of put the idea in our head. And what a great idea, because I think looking at this from the cult film perspective, from the perspective of why did a specific group of people respond to this movie the way that they did, you know, um, that, that has kept it alive and meant so, so much to people. Talking to Charles about it was just delicious. And, um, you know, I have to share a personal story. I don't think I told you about this, but how I first met Charles Bush in person. No. So just so everyone kind of knows, like Charles Bush is someone who did something before other people did. He was this person who was creating off-Broadway theater and having success with it unapologetically in the style and the spirit of Charles Ludlum and the theater of the ridiculous. You know, Charles Bush comes along and does theater where he is starring in the female leads of these productions, you know, and writing outrageous productions. And the fact that he was able to then 
get some of his productions turned into feature films, big feature films. You know, we're not talking about tiny little low budget indies that didn't get distribution. Psycho Beach Party played at the movie theater I ran, you know, in the 2000s. Right. Like this was a big movie, right? Die Mommy Die starring, you know, Jason Priestley and, and Charles Bush and Natasha Leon with Charles Bush, you know, evoking, you know, Joan Crawford and Rosalind Russell and Betty Davis. Um, fantastic movies well ahead of the drag revolution, well before RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, I just want people to understand that Charles Bush is extraordinary. And so I was invited to a lunch in Provincetown when I was doing a run there in the summertime. And all someone said was, Charles Bush is going to be there. And I said, Ooh. I am there. So I get to the restaurant. They seat me Next to Charles Bush, to his left, I'm so excited, and to his right is Coco Peru, okay? To her right is Dina Martina. Next to Dina is Ryan Landry. At the head of the table is Varla Jean Merman. You go around the corner, it's Bianca Del Rio. And it goes on and on. It just so happened that a bunch of us were in Provincetown at the same moment, and we got to have lunch on this sort of pier. I mean, honestly, if the restaurant had gone up in flames, I mean, there goes queer culture, quite frankly. It's just gone. It's erased. It's, er it's eradicated from the earth. I'm going to put a challenge out to our artistic listeners. What Peaches just described is essentially Da Vinci's Last Supper. So <laughs> if somebody would like to do an artistic rendering of all of these drag icons at one table and send it to me... I can't promise that I'll frame it, but I would love to see it, and we will post it on the Midnight Mass. Okay, as Michael can attest to, I have the worst fucking memory. So here's the thing. Those are those are all the people I'm sure were there. I think before you, you uh, do this, please allow me to consult with Coco or someone else who has a better memory than I do to confirm that I'm not missing someone, because I actually think I might be missing uh, another Im uh, uh, important queen or two. I, I can't remember, but I think Jinx was there. Not that Jinx is, you know, not memorable. Um, but, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think she may have been there. Although, she, I would have remembered that, right? But anyway, what I do remember is Charles telling a story that was so amazing. And it was about him being on, <laughs> on an airplane and sitting next to some famous actor and him being so excited that the actor had fallen asleep and he was so hot for the actor, but he had to climb over the actor to get out to use the bathroom and just how, what a titillating experience it was. And then he got up to the sort of show us how it was done and he did it to Coco. He did it to Coco Peru of all people. He climbed over Coco and intimately pushed up against Coco Peru. And the look on fucking Coco's face, I will never forget because Charles is a performer. He's just going for it. I mean, he's getting intimate. He's pushing into Coco Peru. And Michael, as someone, you know, Coco Peru, like I was laughing so hard at the at her reaction to this happening to her that tears were coming down my face. And then Charles sat back down and finished his story. And there was like sort of a beat. And then Coco turned and looked at Charles Bush and she said, don't ever tell that story again. <laughs> <laughs> well 
my first encounter with Charles Bush hardly, you know, comes close to that. But it was funny. I, I don't think I've told you this either, but I was thinking about it when we connected with him. Uh, I had gone to see a Broadway Bears performance in New York. You know, they do this amazing sort of burlesque thing every year to raise money for yes. charity. And Charles was there uh, and they, they brought Charles on stage and Charles was in drag. And afterwards... I, I ran into Charles Bush and it was that kind of same thing where it's like, oh my God, this is Charles Bush. I love Psycho Beach Party. I love Die, Mommy, Die. And I just blurted out, I'm like, you look so beautiful tonight, which he did. And Charles Bush said, thank you. I was going for Ann Miller. And I'll never forget that <laughs> because that's such a Charles Bush thing. As you said, yeah, he evokes yeah, yeah. all these classic actresses of the screen. And, uh, you know, he evokes Joan Crawford in his performance and Betty Davis. And so the fact that the first thing that he ever said to me in our encounters was, thank you, I was going for Ann Miller is something I will think of forever. <laughs> oh, it's so awesome. Truly a living legend. We're so excited to see his new movie coming up. So great that you like yourself. He actually was able to make a movie during the pandemic. No small feat. So that was just such a treat. And I think he embodies this sort of classic archetype of what an anti-mame fan can be inspired to do. You know, not only yes. because of the movie, but because of his own life and his own anti-mame experiences. And I think that leads us to another archetype of a person that this movie speaks to. And that's our next guest. And uh, we would be remiss if we acted as though this movie only spoke to gay men or drag queens, because that's clearly not the case. It's also a, a movie that speaks to uh, strong wacky, eccentric women who may decidedly choose not to have children as part of their life. And we're talking about heterosexual women. Uh, and, and so our next guest is a friend of both of ours who we, we invited to speak on this. This next guest is truly somebody who embodies a lot of the greatest qualities of MAME, I think. I, I, I get to see her all the time here in Los Angeles. She's vibrant and eccentric and also truly a great creator. She is the force behind the cult film Chastity Bites, which she wrote and her amazing husband, John, directed. She's the producer of uh, really great documentaries about queer subjects like Divine and Vito Russo. And she's doing a documentary about Showgirls. So she's clearly one of our people. And she's clearly someone who loves to live and to celebrate life it's Lottie Ferris Knowles, and we're going to talk to her right now. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the cult members that make it up. And luckily, we are joined not only by an avowed super fan of Auntie Mame, she is the writer and producer of the celebrated horny horror comedy Chastity Bites, and has also served as a producer for such celebrated documentaries as I Am Divine, Vito, and the upcoming goddess, The Rise and Fall of Showgirls. An amazing screenwriter, performer, voice actor, and one of my dearest friends. Please welcome Lottie Ferris Knowles. Hi, Lottie. Yay! Hello, my little loves. Let me say. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it's your Auntie Lottie. When we decided to do this episode, I told Peaches, I was like, we have got to call Lottie for this because I know your devotion to this movie runs deep. Like every Christmas, I always know that you would go to those screenings at the Egyptian. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're kind of a little anti-mame yourself in a lot of ways. I'm very anti-mame, anti actually. I'm a member, a founding member of a society called the DBAs, which is the Drunken Baron Ants. And the, you know, the, the requirements are you have not born children, you are a wacky aunt, 
and uh, you like to drink. Cat ownership is a plus, not absolutely required, but most members, let's be real, have them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. When you first um, said that, I thought, that's hilarious. And then I realized as you were uh, going through the requirements that you were being serious. This is a real thing. This is a real thing. I mean, you know, it's in fun. <laughs> We're still yeah. waiting for for my husband John to design the T-shirt, but you know, it's but we we have we we welcome people in, and it's a beautiful thing. So, yes, well, I, I have to say, I really love that we're kicking things off. It's a compliment to the way that our interview started with Charles Bush because. Uh, What we're really discovering with this film is how much it speaks to people whose lives might, you know, sort of emulate some of the spirit of the movie. Charles was raised by an anti-mame. Charles Bush, you know, yeah, it's in New York by an eccentric aunt, you know, like it's like, oh, my God, of course, you know, and and as someone who also is never going to have kids um, and, and enjoyed drinking actually so much that I had to stop. Um, you know, I uh, I am hoping that with my nephew, who's turning three on Christmas, that I'm, I mean, that would be the best thing ever would be to be that person in, in their life that introduces them to these sort of exotic, worldly, you know, um, things that maybe they're not getting at home. Not to say anything bad about my uh, sister and her husband, but they're not as exciting as me. No, of course not. And they don't, I mean, and people with kids, they don't have the money to travel to Karachi and bring back something wacky in their purse. You know, right. that's just not something that can happen. So they, they're relying on us to kind of come in. And I, I was not raised by a wacky aunt, but I had a couple of um, single, cool, you know, childless aunts who I just always was like, wow, they're the bomb, you know, I mean, or or that's my bag, I guess I would have said in the 70s growing up. But so, yeah, I, I always felt like I was drawn to that you know, that spirit and that energy. And I think it's great for kids to have one of us in our lives. And Peaches, you are absolutely welcome to be a DBA, even in your sobriety. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually I actually creepily posted all my nephew's little school photos. I mean, they say, they call them school photos. He's not even three yet. It's like he doesn't go to school. But, you know, his daycare did, you know, uh, photos. And I was like, ah, I really am anti-mame. Like, I'm... <laughs> I, you know that thing where she embraces him right away and, and you know it's like that thing where she just wants to love him and mm-hmm. that's part of what I love about the movie so much is that you don't go through the sort of cliched you know I don't want this kid my this kid's going to cramp my lifestyle you know I'm I'm too fabulous for this it's like no she's like oh no I want you and I'm not going to change and so yeah. here, it, here it is. And I think that's one of the things I love about the movie the most is the way it starts. Oh, yeah. And she's like, he's coming along into my lifestyle and he's going to be the better for it. You know, like going to naked Greek speaking schools or whatever. You know, <laughs> she's like, yeah, I, it's on. I just want to quickly say hi, Charles. And I'm so honored to share this podcast with Charles Bush because what an inspiration. So thank you. So, Lada, we talk about that draw to the eccentricity, and we all need that eccentric relative in our lives, and in some cases, we are that eccentric relative. Uh, And in this movie, we attach to Mame early on. So let's talk about that attachment and your origins. When did you first see this film and decide, this is for Mame? So it's funny, because most of my favorite movies 
you know, came to me at a very formative age, you know, things that I saw when I was 10 or 12 or, you know, 15. This movie, I didn't come to until my 30s. And I was introduced to it at the Outfest screening at the Egyptian. And to take this a little serious for a moment, it was very soon after I had finally gotten diagnosed and properly treated for depression and anxiety, which was cramping my anti-mame spirit for quite a while, That which I think is my natural state of being, right? It's maybe like 75 mame, 25 gooch. But anyway, so <laughs> I was coming out of this really difficult, dark period and kind of ready to live again. And I saw this movie and it just was like... Yes. And I was also at that point where I was really realizing I was going to reject the societal pressure to have my own kids. I was getting a lot of pressure and I knew it was not for me. It was not the life I wanted. And so, you know, there were already a lot of other cinematic um, characters that had kind of spoken to me in the same way. Like, I'll just name one, like uh, Ruth Gordon in My Bodyguard, for example, where she's like the eccentric, crazy grandma. Um, uh, But, you know, so this movie just kind of came to me like at the right time, the right moment. And I'm not really a Christmas person. Like, I like Christmas fine. But, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, I can't wait and all the movies. So this and White Christmas are kind of the two Christmas movies that for me is like all I need. <laughs> that gives me the camp, the joy, the joie de vivre, you know, etc. I love that you bring up um, the social stigma of being a woman uh, who's in a relationship with a man. Mm-hmm. I, I think that does make a difference because I think for queer people, because we're queer, our struggle's a little different when we come out and, you know, um, the, 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 like as adults, there's sort of this acceptance that we've already had when we're kids, when we're coming of age, when we're secretly acknowledging to ourselves that this is who we are. You know, I think later in life, a lot of women I know that I'm close friends with because I'm friends with a lot of anti-mames, let's face Mm -hmm. it. You know, (laughs) a lot of the women in my life are these women. And that's a really big thing to basically say, I'm not going to have children is still a hard thing to do for a woman in this culture, in this, you know, in this day and age. And I think anti-mame in many ways is the symbol, this sort of proud, iconic character unapologetically living her life, you know, the way she wants to live it. I think that's a really strong point that you bring up, that identity. Because I think it's as the queer people, we grow up and watch anti-mame and we go, I want to be raised by an anti-mame or, you know, I want to be an Mm anti-mame. But that can connection that you're having as a woman who is choosing not to have children in this society, in this culture, that's really powerful. I'd never even considered that. So yeah, yeah, thanks for articulating that. Sure. No, I mean, I think that the generation now below mine, I'm sure there's still many of them who get that pressure, but it seems like it's getting easier and more people are making that conscious choice. I sort of feel like in Gen X, we're kind of the last generation of women that were really feeling a lot of pressure about marriage and kids. And maybe I'm wrong. I would love to hear from younger women to know if I'm off the mark, but I feel like it was still sort of this gold standard of womanhood, you know, what I was kind of taught I should be. And 
just was never my vision. I wanted adventures. I wanted fun. I wanted parties. You know, I wanted all of that. But and and I love kids. You know, and so people because I love kids and I was jolly and I've been an arts educator. They're like, oh, but you'd be a great mom. And I'm like, but would I? Do you really know? Because I think a lot of times people make assumptions about what would make a great parent, and it's not true. But I'm a killer aunt. Like that is my sweet spot. So, yeah. Well, what I love about looking at this through the lens of anti-mame is there are a lot of different definitions of queer. And and mame represents a queerness by societal standards because she's going against the mainstream and what that means for women as well. And what I, I, I think is really interesting about how the movie is structured, it's the series of vignettes that create a larger narrative. And while there's no bad portion of this movie, I could watch this for days, Rosalind Russell is fire the entire time, I would say probably the weakest moments are when they try and give her a love interest. Like, that guy's fine, but, like, I'm more interested in having her, like, ride the horse yeah. and the hilarity <laughs> that involves in that. And I think that we inherently, as, as viewers are attached to her independence, would you say? And that's why... Sure. But I also love that she's able to have both, you know, because I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, single women always going to be single or married women, they, they always have to have a man. And she kind of represents, I think, this nice blend where it's like, hey, if the right guy comes along, great, I'm down. But if he moves along or I'm not ready or he dies, like, I'm not going to lie down and die or feel like I have nothing to contribute. Like, my life goes on as, you know, this free-spirited woman. And the man has to fit into her life, right? Too, right. It's not changing herself in any way. He's, it's kind of like Patrick. It's like, you're coming along for my ride now. And if you happen to have some money to finance it, cool. Like, <laughs> you know, like that, that doesn't suck. So... You know, but yeah, absolutely. There's there's a queerness. There's also that whole thread, you know, that really, the God, we are living in it now. So in some ways, I'm going to say that, like, it's more relevant now than ever. But that whole thing in America of um, the anti-intellectualism and how this movie really pokes the holes in, you know, kind of, that the people who are not down for, you know, being at a party with, you know, the bearded beatnik painter, the lesbian couple in suits, all these people who are, you know, that what's the, the guy who's kind of like um, Nostradamus? Isn't there a guy who's like a Russian yeah. priest or like something? A, a bishop, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I also love that too, that it's so un- unapologetically pro open mindedness and queerness, it's almost like the movie was made knowing that years into the future, there would be audiences full of queer people, like just hooting and hollering and cheering at certain moments, you know, like they, they just somehow knew like, this is, we're, this is a gift that we are, you know, giving that community. In 1958, you know, for them to make this film and and to choose to put those two women in that one shot, you know, where they're dressed in sort of the suits and, you know, like like to know that on the set and that the people making the decisions around the way that this film was going to be presented, that they took audacious risks. And I love how you're describing her relationship with the man, because 
One of the things I took away from this film that I think is lovely, especially considering our culture war uh, right now, is that they don't do some of the cliched things that you would expect that would, I think, be be done today. So she's smart. She's worldly. She lives in New York. She's artistic. She's creative. She's eccentric. They smartly set her world up so that it, she's never pitted against people of a lower class. Right. So when she's having conflict with people of a different culture, they're all rich. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that is so cool because I think right now the, the billionaires love pitting us against each other. They love it because it keeps them at the top, right? Yes. So they love a class warfare. They love racism. They love homophobia. They love misogyny because it keeps everyone, you know, at bay. And in Auntie Mame's world, she accepted the Southerner because he was kind, because mm-hmm. he was open-minded, because he accepted her for who she was. And because when she was, you know, in a position to be, you know, working um, at like a retail job, he was kind to her. And where it really gets interesting is with the rich anti-Semites, the intellectuals, mm-hmm. the, the people that so easily could be, have been perceived as, I mean, let's face it, they're sort of, they're, they're the Kennedys, they're the, the Clintons. Mm-hmm. To me, I was watching it going like, fuck, this is progressive. This is yeah. so ahead of its time. What a special thing. I don't think it would be made that way today. They would have to dumb it down in various ways and make certain things more obvious. It's very broad in some ways, broad, being the key word, but (laughs) I love that word, but there's also subtlety and there's a lot of these messages that amidst all the wacky uproarious fun, it's, you know, like I said, pro open-mindedness, pro loyalty and compassion, um, and pro just, just be open and just let things come to you. Stop closing yourself off. So many people, especially now, I feel like are shutting down and retreating to corners and building, you know, these walls around themselves. And honestly, the bottom line, of course, there's things that make me angry with what's going on politically, but the bottom line is it makes me sad for everyone. Because if I am going to take a place of compassion for anyone on any side of this, they are losing out on so much. And what Auntie Mame shows us is that if you want to be on your deathbed someday, even though we don't see her there, luckily, you know, and look back and feel like, wow, I, I don't have any regrets. You know, I lived a full life. You have to take a bite of that apple and you have to be willing to, you know, have conversations with somebody that you're like, who are you? We may not even speak the same language, but let's see if we can communicate Really, there's so many things about this movie. And, you know, it's funny because, of course, it was taken from a stage play, which was taken from a book. But in reading a little bit about the background of some of the people involved, most of the people involved were theater people. And that spirit very much comes through. And I love that they kind of craft the movie like a play. But also you feel that spirit of theater people, (laughs) you know, the ragtag bunch that we are, you know, living in this movie. Well, I'm glad you talk about the ragtag spirit of theater people because it's a great segue into the eccentric 
folks who populate MAME's world. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the themes and the layers and the socio-political and, and, uh, issues that are still prevalent today in this movie, but one of the other things we love about this movie is it's fun. And not only is MAME just a truly dynamic main character, she's surrounded by some really, really great characters. Amazing. And I wanted to ask you, do you have a personal favorite of the supporting cast? Oh, it has to be Gooch. I mean, I love her. Like, <laughs> I absolutely relate to her, too. Like I said, I'm like more main but there's I'm definitely like nerdy gooch girl too and her journey and her transformation and she, and oh my god is it Peggy Cass is that her name yes. yeah like I think she had more of a theater career but I'm like oh my god why was she not in more you know like I want more star turns in cinema before she left us too soon you know and I think that you know, she comes into it and she's so adorably, you know, kind of slapstick nerd, but then she gets this real journey. And here's this like nerdy kind of hunched over gal who without a lot of sophistication, and she kind of ends up with, you know, this suave Irish playboy, you know, like, they just, they, they don't have any qualms about expectations in this movie of like, oh, well, this is what needs to happen. And she needs to be so glammed up that it's like, you know, uh, she's all that or something where the person is barely right. unattractive, but they have glasses on. And then suddenly, you know, but like, <laughs> they just kind of, yeah. they, they glam her up, but she's still like blind and, oh, you know, and clumsy yes. and a little hunchbacked. And yet she yep. still manages to go out and I lived, you <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I just I I adore her. She's sort of that the embodiment of um, you know, I think Rocky Horror's message is so similar, right? Which is don't dream it, be it. And yeah. and the real message of anti-mame is, you know, that life's um a banquet and most people are starving, right? Live, live, live. And you know, she as a character is the one we get to really kind of experience that with. And sadly, I think we're we're at this place in the film where it's very frustrating to see Patrick and what, you know, what Patrick's, you know, kind of becoming. And it's it's almost painful to watch. Mm-hmm. And so we we need that. We need Peggy Cass and we need her comedic relief and we need her exciting turn. Mm-hmm. And um, Lottie, you're going to be so into this. And I, I, I won't. I won't rehash it here in its entirety because the listeners have already heard Charles Bush describe that he played the anti-main part multiple times for multiple reasons, including, you know, stage shows and tours. But one time it was for like some big fundraiser, I believe for an actor's nonprofit. I don't, I'm not sure of the details, but guess who they cast as Gooch? Peggy Cass, Nuh-uh. who came out of yes, who yeah, came out of retirement, out of retirement and played. She only agreed to do the benefit if she could play her same role. And uh, you know what I didn't say to Charles what? Michael? It's like, what would it be like to see like an eighty-year-old woman pregnant? You know, on, on stage. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know. That, but yes, you'll hear it all. He describes it much better I than I can. Wait, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. that is that. I mean, I don't know how he didn't just die happy the next day because that's living the dream. Amazing. I have to say really quick, it's funny you brought up Rocky Horror because I was thinking earlier and I forgot to mention when we talked about my origins with this movie that the way I see myself first watching Anti-Mame is the scene in Fame where Doris Finsecker is first going to the Rocky Horror Picture Uh. Show and she's like living, she's like 
what, what is this world? Like, this is a world I would like crawl. I'm going up there on stage. I'm going to live in it. That was kind of like exactly how I felt that first time seeing Auntie Mame. Can I ask you, the night that you saw it at Outfest, was Alonzo Duraldi hosting that event? I can't remember. He probably was, but it, that was, oh, that was, has got to be, it was like the late aughts, as it were. So I can't, <laughs> too old to remember that far back, that detail. I know that he had a fairly regular gig doing the Christmas stuff for Outfest, so yeah. I just was going to shout him out. Yeah, and other great stuff, too. He has a lot of fabulous screenings of movies that... I'm very glad he introduced me to. Lottie, one thing that we've all been discussing since we watched this movie, and we would be remiss if we didn't ask you, but Mame herself is kind of a drag queen. You know, her outfits are very draggy. But, you know, the other drag queen of this movie is her apartment. Oh, yeah. And so do you have, one, a favorite outfit of Mame's, and two, a favorite apartment of Mame's? My favorite outfit is that one where it's sort of like um, a, a, like a long sleeve tight shirt that has like that long vest over it that I think is sort of sparkly. I want to say maybe it's sort of, or you know what I'm talking about? Like it's sort of like main casual wear, which is not really casual <laughs> at all, but it just looks like comfortable and fabulous all at the same time. So, yes. I mean, you know, a lot of her looks are amazing, but that one's the kind of thing when I think of her in my mind's eye and I think like, okay, what outfit do I want? Um, and I think that Asian inspired apartment, which I want to say is the first one from the party. Am I right? It is. Because yes. the, the dragon that like there's like the dragon doorbell or something. So she sort of bookends uh, it in a way because the, definitely the Asian sort of Chinese style apartment or at the time they would have called it Oriental right, uh, inspired right, right? <laughs> design uh, with the dragon and that whole thing is just so amazing um and then at the end it's kind of a more south asian she does more of a a, a, yeah Yeah. kind of thing and both of those are actually my favorites as well um and you know that actually brings up an interesting point which I, i have to give this movie some credit because when we have reviewed movies and i think all of us know that when we go back and watch our favorite movies the the longer we go back um the more (laughs) cringe we might find yeah. these things that, that especially course. you know we've you know evolved as an audience um, yeah. and, and I have to say and, I, and we brought this up with Charles that uh, while Ido is probably the most cringe character as far as you know you, you really feel for this great actor who's kind of having to do this silly clowny role uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for the, the, the depth that they gave the character where he pays her bills and I feel like that that moment you know really is so beautiful because you realize like oh no these aren't just clowns these are her closest right. family yes. members mm-hmm. yeah it's beautiful everybody is given humor and depth and yeah Ito is the one character that if you're visiting it from today's perspective, you have to get past. And it is tough because it's yeah. it's not a cool portrayal for most of it. But the fact that they respect that character enough to give him some depth and he is not just the surface caricature of the man, you know, Asian manservant um, that redeems it slightly. And, uh, you know, I Slightly, am some, yes. Exactly. Slightly. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Let's not forgive it entirely. I hope the audience realizes right. that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. As long as something is not done in meanness, I can look past 
things that were of a different era. If there is something that feels truly racist, anti-gay, you know, that's where it gets difficult. But because there is affection for this character and given that, I feel like to dismiss the whole movie because of that character would be a terrible decision and would actually miss still the point of what they're trying to say. And the fact that, again, he is Asian and works for her, but he's part of her family. I think that statement can be maybe on a par with the message of the clownish, you know, stereotypical behavior to sort of balance it. So that is my take Internet, bring it on if you want. I, I have to say, and, 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 and I know Michael is just a little bit younger than we are, but I think um, those of us from, from Generation X that grew up with certain, certain forms of media tend to look at intention more than anything, right? right. So we can both acknowledge that it's problematic, it is offensive, yeah. but that the intention... Um, needs to be considered when making an evaluation, and, right. and it's and again we could bring up Rocky Horror. There are things in in the Rocky Horror Picture Show around consent and Frankenfurter, you know, disguising <laughs> himself as as someone else to to get in their pants. Right. But we also have to acknowledge. I mean, well, uh, uh, Auntie Mame. There's this whole sequence where the Irish writer is like attacking her. Yes. Yes. The way it's presented then did not have the intended effect that it has now which is like right. oh my god you yeah. know like <laughs> settle down guys she needs to call the police you know yeah exactly yeah. they were really going for like sex farce yeah then, whereas we like now are like wow yeah. no also i i have to say i kind of don't like that guy like actor was great but like he's just kind of terrible he's leeching off of her he's doing yeah. nothing he's kind of rapey so yeah no yeah. i mean listen i'm thrilled for agnes that she got to live, he wouldn't be my ultimate choice for her. So my hope is that maybe eventually she raises the baby on her own or with Mame, you know, traveling the world and he has some visitation rights, but you know, he's <laughs> no, he's not in the picture forever with, with her. She moves on. But Agreed. Um, yeah, it's funny though. It's very much, you know, kind of like when I talk with my mom about me too and those kind of things and that generational disparity and my mom always talks about well we just moved fast in those days when we knew somebody was handsy and i'm like oh kind of like that scene is sort of the perfect illustration where it's like boys will be boys and i better just move fast and it's like that's definitely problematic but it's so funny that that never even registered with me on that level as a woman i mean i totally see it now but yeah. Well, thank I, God we live in a time now, and this is what's so lovely about these things, where we can actually view this stuff through a different lens. Yes. And we can look at the, the time in which it was made. And again, I'm not saying to forgive it. I'm saying to understand it. And, yeah. you know, and that we do live in a time now where we look at the same thing and hopefully we're raising girls. Like, I'm thinking about my nieces. Yes. I think they would watch that scene and be very disturbed by it. And I think that's great, you know. Yeah, they wouldn't absolutely. Chuck, they would not chuckle it off, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, and I'm also hoping that we're raising boys who would watch that Thank scene you. and be disturbed yes. by it. Even better. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, I totally agree. 
you know, I, like I said earlier, you know, in the spirit of MAME, I like conversations. I don't like building a wall. So, uh, for example, you know, you have this whole canon of cinema, music, arts, theater, etc., that was made back in the day. And some of it has some things in it that are not pretty. But to wall yourself off from it and not at least have the conversation and not kind of put it in its context, that's where I think the tragedy would be. If somebody tuned out from anti-mame and all that it does have to offer, you know, because they're like, oh, those two things that they told us are happening are terrible. And so therefore, screw that movie. Don't do that if you're out there listening and you haven't seen it, because there's a lot of good stuff in there. And put those things in their historical context while realizing they're absolutely problematic. So, mm-hmm. Well, let's face it. One of the functions of art is to inspire a conversation and to inspire change. Yes. So if you look at material from yesteryear that maybe is not up to snuff by today's standards, to strike it entirely from the record still is a disservice to that art. Yes. Because if you remove something without having the conversation, then you learn nothing from it and you eventually repeat that mistake. One thing we can bring up here is that Lottie, uh, Michael, and I all share a great, deep, earnest love for the movie Showgirls. And we can we can we can all agree, like every Showgirls fan I know, and Lord knows I have contributed to the cult of Showgirls and and, and am proud to have contributed to it. But we Amen. all agree that the rape scene uh, of Molly is completely unnecessary and horrible and not something that we celebrate. And somehow, as fans, we kind of can remove it. It actually p- place the blame where it belongs, which is with the writer and the director. Like, what right. the fuck were you thinking? Like, you've just, you know, d- deflated all the joy that we were experiencing. You know, but you can still enjoy the rest of the movie and kind of remove yeah. that that part of it. You know, and I think that, you know, with a lot of these cult films and well, just any movie, like you said, any any work, a, a novel, a great work of literature, you're, you're going to find shit in it that just doesn't. Um, feel right or feel comfortable now for good reason, but let's not throw it away. And the rape scene in Showgirls, not to go down that rabbit hole too deep, but, you know, that you could also say is like, oh, that's the vestige of their original intent making that movie Mm -hmm. to show you how horrible show business is and how horrible it is to women. And Mm -hmm. so in some ways, you know, it kind of is this gut punch that reminds you like, oh yeah, this seems like can't be fun, but he was making a point and now it is in your face and you can't deny it so and it is based on some reality so there's two sides to that too you know yeah i agree with you so much lottie and for everyone who has bought this sort of narrative that joe esterhaus and paul verhoeven have there there is interview proof that they have they have gone on record as saying we intended it to be campy or a comedy i say you're full of shit i love i love paul verhoeven i cannot (laughs) wait for his non-sploitation movie opens this Friday in San Francisco. Oh my God, yes. I I love him. I think he's an amazing filmmaker, but I will say this. No, 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 Paul. Mm -hmm. Because if that were true, this one scene would never have made it into the movie. It just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And bringing it back to anti-mame in the spirit of this discussion of growing with the art, one thing that I like to ask people who have embraced these cult films because cult films are movies we take with us through our lives from that time that you first saw it at the outfest screening to now how has your relationship with this movie changed lottie or like what does it mean to you today 
as opposed to when you first found it? I actually think it's it kind of means the same thing to me. And, you know, which is an affirmation of life overall and an affirmation of strong women. Because really and truly, you know, all of all of the female characters, well, not all, but the, the main ones, you know, Gooch makes her journey, but even um, Vera is her her good friend, the actress, right? Like Vera has a lot, yeah. even though she's like a Tulula bankhead, drunken, crazy person. But that friendship is kind of the main, you know, one of the main long lasting relationships of the whole film, you know? So there's so much female positivity, strong female energy, queer positivity, whether they completely intended it or not, although I think they slyly found a way to put that in. And just, again, you know, to me, it's something that if I need to be reaffirmed about why get up every day, why, you know, when things seem bleak, sometimes things seem bleak. We've had a couple <laughs> a couple years <laughs> where the, things seem pretty bleak. But you know, even if I, you can't hop on the plane to Karachi for various reasons, there are still things you can do and contribute and ways that you can really kind of suck the marrow out of life so that you are not starving to death at the banquet before us. So I just kind of, you know, keep coming back to it, both as a riotous good time, but also as that affirmation of, yeah, take a bite out of that apple and eat that whole thing, man, because this is our one go around in this life form that we are now. That could not be a more beautiful testament to why we love this movie. And so I love ending on a, on a really great note like that. And, you know, rewatching the film again, it's a great movie. And if you are listening to the podcast and you haven't seen it in a while, do yourself a favor and check it out. And if you haven't watched it at all, God, I'm jealous. You know, get yeah. ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, get ready. Yeah, go to the Outfest screening or another, you know, queer-centric screening in your area, if possible, this holiday season, you know, if you're vaccinated and willing to get out and about, because... It, it really, it, I feel like actually the spirit of this movie is what the true spirit of Christmas should be. So, yes. absolutely. <laughs> so Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Merry everything, everybody. Yes. Well, Lottie, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk about this movie you love. We uh, adore your passion for it. And thank you for being our auntie. Oh, always my little loves. And uh, I am so honored to be here. Thank you. I can't wait for us all to uh, go on a trip to the Alps together, but not, we're gonna be careful taking those photos so that we don't slide down the Matterhorn. But yeah. that trip is in order, so. All right. <laughs> Bye, Goodbye. love you guys. And that was our interview with the amazing Lottie Ferris Knowles. You know, Peaches, I really, really loved the perspective that Lottie brought to this movie uh, just from from the feminist point of view and how this movie helped her as, as a woman kind of reclaim herself. I think that that's the power of cinema, you know? Completely. And I think that it really speaks to a similar attraction that we as queer men have to the movie where it's like, look, 
we're supposed to do X, Y, Z. Society tells us that, you know, really we're supposed to live this way, grow up, get married, have kids, live in the suburbs, you know, send people to college, blah, 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 go to good schools, this or that. And and what I love about it is it doesn't matter if you're in the North or the South, these sorts of societal expectations are put on people. And that um, anti-mame represents a big middle finger to all of that, you know? So whether you're, you know, a queer guy uh, trying to escape or you're a woman who doesn't want to grow up and get married uh, and have kids and, um, you know, live in the suburbs, you know, it's it's such a great thing to realize that she has inspired so many of us to uh, live, live, live. And I think that that's really the ultimate message of this movie and this episode. Go out there and meet life head on and do it your way. Do it fabulously. That's that's anti-mame. Completely. And um, a couple things that we want to bring up um, before we wrap up. Uh, if you haven't yet seen it, Michael and I appeared together on Dragula. So there is an episode out, the, the episode The Exorcisters. So if you're not caught up on Dragula and you want to see Michael and myself appear on the show, not as judges, mind you. We are actually there as writers, directors, um, and believe it or not, uh, get to judge a mini-challenge where the contestants attempt to do their peaches eyebrows. Not, might I say, in the most flattering of ways, but, you know, hey, I guess that's what they think I look like. But you were a very good sport about it, I will say. <laughs> I thought so, too, you know, because I was looking <laughs> at it. Even watching it on TV, I was like, no, it really is as ridiculous as I remember it being. Um, Adali literally does like fucking I don't even know what that is Bozo it's not even it's bigger than Bozo the clown I mean it is just insane I actually think it's quite funny that they did it the way they did it so check out Dragula and then join our Patreon become a member of the Children of the Podcorn we actually have some exclusive content with Lottie Ferris Knowles that we're going to be sharing with Patreon subscribers uh, where we get to talk a little further with her about her own movie, Chastity Bites. And we have a lot more that we're going to be sharing and putting on there, including our upcoming first Zoom party, a live Zoom party where Michael and I will host you, the subscribers, in, in a conversation, in a back and forth, a rap session, if you will. And don't forget, Peaches, since uh, we're doing our promo train, as of the date of this listening, uh, of you listening to this, rather, it is December 8th, which means if you live in the Bay Area one week from today, Peaches and I will be live at the Roxy Theater doing Midnight Mass, Phantom of the Paradise, a version you've never seen before. So if you are up in San Francisco or Oakland or wherever you want to drive in from and are not getting enough from the podcast, come see us. We yeah. want you to. It's going to be fabulous. And as we've mentioned Uh, We are going to be screening the movie like you've never seen it before. And for legal reasons, I can say no more. Uh, So yes, check it all out. All of that stuff and more is available at peacheschrist.com. If you need to find the Patreon or the Roxy screening, Um, of course, Michael and I can be found on all the social media channels. Um, We do have a Midnight Mass podcast Twitter account, Midnight Mass Pod. So we're really really stepping up our game here. We want this podcast to uh, be around for a long time. We want to be able to create shows and put on events. And with your help, we should be able to do that. So thank you for listening. And if you do any of these things, well, then it's obvious. You, too, are a child of the podcore now. <laughs> <laughs>
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.